Well, good morning, Door Creek. It's good to be together, and for any guests here, my name's Mark. I'm one of the pastors here at Door Creek, and we are in the midst of a series uh, called Questioning Christianity, and today's question, at least for a guy whose last science class was junior year in high school biology, uh, it's a humdinger. Does science disprove the Bible? And it's kind of a loaded question. There's a lot of different parts to it. I mean, you could, you could say, can science and faith coexist? Does science make, make faith um, irrelevant? Can, can I be a, a Christ follower who believes in the Bible and do rigorous science? Or can I be a scientist and believe in God and the Bible? And uh, for many people, it's like oil and water. Like these two things don't go together. Science and faith, science, and the Bible, and um, polar opposites. You know, it'd be kind of like, I guess, living in Green Bay and rooting for the Chicago Bears. It just doesn't, doesn't go together. By the way, did the Bears play last week? I, I heard they had a bye week, right? They didn't play last week, did they? Now, as we get into um, to this subject today, I'm really glad to tell you that I, I'm sure... We're not going to answer all the questions you have on a subject like this. But here's what's cool. Tomorrow night, this is kind of a last-minute idea. Sometimes they're the best, right? So we put together this forum on science and faith. And I've invited three members of our church to join us. One of them who has a Ph.D. in physics. Another is a Ph.D. in physiology and molecular biology. And the other who uh, is a medical doctor who has some uh, degrees in the area of bioethics. And it's going to be a great forum Monday night right here at 7 o'clock in this room tomorrow till 8.30. Q&A. Bring your questions. Bring your friends. So I'm looking forward to that. Now, you don't have to be a scientist to know that there's a lot of, I mean, the gloves are off. People are duking it out over this whole thing of science and faith, creation and evolution. All you have to do is start paying attention to the bumper stickers. So you're driving around, you see the good old fish. And some of us are going, by the way, what are the letters anyways? They're the Greek letters for the five words that go like this. Jesus, Christ, God, Son, Savior. You've seen the fish. All right, that's a, that's a Christ follower. Have you seen the Darwinian one? It's the fish that's growing legs, right? Have you seen that? All right, we've seen that. Maybe you've seen some of these a little bit more antagonistic ones where science is, is gobbling up the little myth of Christianity and faith. Or there's the other one where Jesus is chomping on Darwin, okay? So, you, you, don't, you know, you just drive around and you see these things. But let me suggest to you that the bumper stickers are tame compared to the rhetoric that goes on between scientists and Bible scholars and teachers. And so let me just give you a case in point. Richard Dawkins, we've talked about him before. He is an evolutionary biologist from Oxford. He's written the book, The God Delusion, it's part of that camp. It's called the New Atheists. He, he argues you can't be an intelligent scientific thinker and still hold religious beliefs. And here's one of his classic quotes. It's absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked. But I'd rather not consider that. I'm thinking now... How does an atheist have the category of wicked? Well, he's got it. He says, I first wrote that 
in a book review in the New York Times back in 1989. He was reviewing a book called Blueprints. He says, It's been much quoted against me ever since as evidence of my arrogance and intolerance. Well, I'm not using it as an example of, of intolerance, but just of there's this heated debate, right? He says, Of course it sounds arrogant, but undisguised clarity is easily mistaken for arrogance. I go, that's brilliant. So the next time somebody accuses me of being cocky or arrogant or proud, I'm say, oh, I'm sorry, you just misunderstood me. There's a, I've just got a case of undisguised clarity going on in my life. That's beautiful. So he goes on, examine the statement carefully, and it turns out to be moderate. Almost self-evidently true. I'm thinking, wow, if this is like a case of a moderate statement, whew, I can imagine what his statement sound like that he would label as extreme. So you've got on one side. Now, let me, let me give you some quotes from, from people on the other side. One Bible teacher I was listening to even this last week calls it a cosmic battle, a battle between truth and lie, calling the teaching of evolution the greatest lies laid on mankind. And so there's this divide. But let me suggest to you, if you're considering the claims of Christ here this morning, you're listening to this, that you need to understand that the divide isn't just between people of faith and science, between an evolutionist and a creationist. There's actually, there's divide even within the family of God. I remember running into that when I was um, on a long walk with my cousin in Switzerland. We were there as a family for sabbatical, and we'd been invited to this distant relative for a time of worship, and we went to their little church, and then to their home for lunch, and it was great, and Swiss loved to take a walk. You know, on Sunday afternoon, the whole country's walking. So we did the Swiss thing and took this big hike, and, and on the hike, we got, we had three hours, we had a long discussion about the Bible and science and evolution. My cousin's got a PhD in biology from Brandeis University. He's a biology teacher in Lausanne, Switzerland. And here I am in, in French trying to have this conversation. So my cousin loves Christ. He's a leader in his church. He, he believes the Bible is the word of God and he believes in evolution. And he believes Genesis 1 through 11 isn't a, a, a story of history. It's, it's actually more of a literary work that has more to do with poetry and song than it does with the actual recording of the, the events that happened there at the very beginning. And we had this very interesting conversation. And it's just good to know, whether you're a Christ follower or looking in at what it means to be a Christ follower, that all the Christ followers are on the same page on these matters that we're going to be talking about today. It's good to know that. So, at first glance, it looks like a great divide, impassable, evolution and science on one side of this chasm, creation, the Bible and faith on the other. In a recent Christianity Today article, Francis Collins, here's a massive intellect, he, he teaches uh, at Oxford, he's one of Dawkins' contemporaries, he is the head of the Human Genome Project, and he, and he answers the question, why did you write this book called The Language of God. A scientist presents evidence for belief. Here's what he said. He said, you know, I, I'm meeting all these, these students that come to the university. These students who grew up in these families of faith, and they come to the university, and they have uh, science teachers that are atheists, and they tell the students that you can't hold on to both. You, you can't be a scientist and be 
a Christian, a Christ follower who believes in the Bible. You got you to gotta chuck it. Or on the other hand, they have uh, what he would call fundamentalist religious teachers who say, you, you can't believe these things and do science. And he says, unfortunately, people are forcing these students to choose between the two. And he says, what I'm seeing is that they simply walk away from both. He says, what I see is they, they're convinced that science is godless and, and that faith is not to be trusted because it asks them to disbelieve facts that now seem absolutely incontrovertible. And so Keller sums up this kind of polar opposites in his book, A Reason for God, with this quote, Many creationist view of Genesis 1 makes any kind of evolutionary process impossible while the philosophical materialism or naturalism of Dawkins makes religious belief totally invalid. And so there's a divide. You go, I'm not so sure. Yeah, you're sure. All you need to do is think about this word, science textbooks. And and we know it's going on in our day-to-day. People are, are getting into big debates about what are our kids learning and what are we calling this? Is this the fact of evolution? Is it the theory? Can we teach about creation? Can we not? Should we not? It's a debate. It's going on and it divides people not just outside of the church but even inside. So how do we navigate this? How do we work through this? Well, we've already talked about one way is to just go, you know, take the gloves off and just have a big fight about it. It's war and conflict. We paint people in positions into corners and we call people who believe in God stupid and arrogant and, you know, uh, you know ignorant, all, the, all these things, maybe even wicked. Or, or we say they're, they're evil people who teach evolution and, and they're liars. I don't think that's the way forward. It's pretty clear. That's not the way forward. Now, there's another way, and it takes almost the opposite take on it. Stephen Jay Gould, so this late Harvard uh, evolutionary um, scientist who's an atheist, he says, look, what we need to recognize is uh, they're, they're two completely different worlds. It's like there's this universe of science, there's this universe of faith, and there's, there's no overlap. There's nothing like this. He calls it this non-overlapping magisterium, that you have no authority to say anything about this camp, and this camp has no authority to speak into this realm. They're independent realms, so don't try and bring them together. And that's another one. The other one is that you're trying to bring it all together, this integration model that's that's looking for complete overlap. And and it's like this bumper sticker that uh, says, you know, Darwin plus faith. It's got the love heart above it. No controversy. It's all good. Okay? So I I don't think the first two are going to be helpful. I think the third is probably a little dangerous. Uh, But I, I think as we get into what I'm hoping is an approach to these questions for us as a church, but individually in our conversations with people, that we we enter into a dialogue, a conversation that really lets people know that we care about them as a person as we listen to the things that they believe more than we care about our position and having to prove that we're right. And so we want to have this dialogue. And as we have the dialogue, here's what I'd like us to do. is just to say, here's some things to remember. So you're questioning whether science disproves the Bible. Well, let's go back to the history of when science began, the 17th century. Guys like Newton and Galileo and Bacon and others. And and let's remember our history of what happened back then when 
science just started to, to uh, come to the fore in terms of, of a practice, of a discipline. And, and here's what we learn. We learn is a guy like Newton, who wrote probably the most influential book on the history of science, short word for it is the Principia in 1687. He's probably more influential than Einstein. You know, he's got the laws of gravity that he's, he's uncovered that don't even just work in our world, but in our, in our greater universe. He's the father. Okay, so students, you know, you're bumming in calculus right now. He's the guy you got to get mad at. He's like the co-father of calculus. And here's what he said about God. The true God is a living, intelligent, and powerful being. His duration reaches from eternity to eternity. His presence from infinity to infinity. He governs all things. And you study a guy like Newton, all of a sudden you find out this guy wrote more things theologically than he did as a scientist. This guy wrote a commentary on, of all books, Daniel and Revelation. Or take Johannes Kepler, who said of his science that when he was doing science, he was thinking thoughts after God. He was studying for the Lutheran ministry. He's a guy who comes up with the, the laws of planetary motion. And lots more. He says this about science. The chief aim of science, of all investigations of the external world, should be to discover the rational order and harmony which has been imposed on it by God. And so the history of science is, these were men of faith who had God in their worldview and expected this God who reveals himself as a God of order, not of chaos, the end of 1 Corinthians 14. As we look into his world, they expected to find order, not chaos. It was the very fact of who God was as he was revealed in the Bible that had him start expecting certain things about this universe that he created. So we want to remember that. We also want to remember that not every scientist today is an atheist who rejects the Bible, God, and faith. And you know, it's easy to do that. I was just talking to someone between services. She was a biology major in college and had this prof who basically said, you know, you, you can't be an intelligent person and hold on to these things. And he attacked her and mocked her and went after her. And, and it's easy to think that, you know, any credible scientist that's out there won't be a person of faith, won't believe in God, won't believe that the Bible is true. And that couldn't be further from the truth. There's an interesting study that, that Keller talks about in his chapter on science and faith. It's a study that went out in 1916. It was repeated the same question to the scientific community then and just recently. 40% then in 1960 believed that there was a God. 40% today do. I'm not assuming that they all have the same concept of God, but at least they have God in their worldview, as did the founders of modern science. So you've got a guy like Collins who talks about his work of discovery as a, science, as a scientist, and he says, for him, it's a form of worship. That's what he's doing. But as you think about these things, it's good to remember the lessons from history. And we'll use Galileo as a perfect example. Galileo is the guy who discovered that actually the earth isn't the center of the universe. That things revolve and rotate around the sun. Well, that was a big problem for the church at that time because they read 
passages like we're going to read in, in Psalm 19 later that made it sound like the sun is going around the earth and it really is the earth that's the center. And as they wrestled with Galileo's findings, they said, it's not true, the scripture, you're wrong. And they branded him a heretic. And what happened here is the church got it wrong is they didn't understand how the Bible works. And so we want to remember the lessons of history, men of faith, but of the church overstepping its bound as they understood the Bible and at times didn't understand it correctly. And so how does the Bible work? What, what is this thing that we hold in our hands this morning? Now, I hear this a lot. I hear people say, well, actually, it's a manual. It's a manual. Just like the one I have for my Honda. You know, it tells me how my car works. It tells me how, how it works, how life works. Now, what I don't like about the manual metaphor is then all of a sudden I begin thinking this book is about me. And it is about me. But let me suggest it's not fundamentally, it's not first about me. It's first about who? It's, it's about God. It's a revelation about who God is and what is he up about. He's, he's up to bringing us back into this relationship to him, the relationship we were created for. And that relationship is being reconciled through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's what this book is, first and foremost. Does it tell us things about life and how to live life? Absolutely. But we understand, first and foremost, it's a revelation about who God is. And so as such... We understand that it's not primarily a science text. But when it speaks of things scientific, it does so in the same way that we often talk about matters of science. How things appear to the eye as we see it. So the sun does appear to be rising in the morning and setting. And so we're not shocked when the meteorologist says to us on the 10 o'clock news, sunset is at such and such time and sunrise tomorrow will be at such and such. We don't go, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute. Sun doesn't rise, sun doesn't set. And we understand that's what's going on. And when the Bible talks about matters that we might categorize as scientific or science, we need to understand that generally speaking, that's how it talks about it. The term is phenomenologically, how it appears to our senses. So, for example, in Ecclesiastes, first chapter, verse 5, the sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. Now, an important thing that, that has just hit me in a new way this week is this is a book that is very different from a science text. I mean, science texts may give us some of the history of science, some of the theories, the hypotheses, some of the laws of science. And there certainly is lots of knowledge in this book. But it's more than knowledge. Let me suggest to you it's exactly what you're looking for today as you're wrestling with just the hard stuff in your life. Like how to get along with mom and dad. Or, or how... how to deal with a situation with one of our kids. Maybe it's a situation in your marriage, a situation that deals with your health or the health of a loved one or, or you know, you just, you just did this thing called retire and now your retirement account is like cut in half in just, just a year's time. And you need wisdom. You're not going to a science text going, I need some laws of this universe that are going to guide me now. And you're not looking for that. You're looking for wisdom. And the Bible is chock full of wisdom. 
Christ is called the wisdom of God, wisdom personified. And so when we come to the Bible, we need to understand what it is and how it works. And we need to understand fundamentally that the Bible doesn't always wrestle with the questions we're wrestling with. Case in point, you start reading Genesis 1 and 2, trying to figure out this thing about creation. How how does it work? Well, that, that question, how, is exactly the question of a scientist. How does it work? How did it happen? When did it happen? Well, here's the interesting thing. Is the Bible doesn't always answer the questions we're asking. When you start reading Genesis 1 and 2, all of a sudden you realize the Bible's talking about two other questions, very important questions, like who? Who created it? Why? Why would he create it? God is the creator. And you open it up, and all of a sudden you realize the Bible doesn't make an argument for God. It just assumes he exists. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Tells us a little bit of how. He spoke in existence. He forms Adam out of the clay. He takes Adam's rib, and he forms Eve from it. But we don't really know exactly how that all worked. We don't know when it worked. Was it six 24-hour days? Could have been. Was it a lot longer? Could have been, because that word day sometimes means a 24-hour day. Sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, but it talks about mornings and evenings. Yeah, it does. But day seven doesn't have mornings and evenings. And you got mornings and evenings going on in Genesis in the early days before there's even the sun. And so you need to understand that Christians don't all agree on how old is this earth. I'm not so sure the Bible tells us that. It tells us other kinds of questions. Who and why? Isaiah says we are created for his glory. We are created for a relationship. And, and so we need to understand that. That sometimes we ask questions that the Bible's not concerned about. And we need to be okay with that. There's mystery in life. We'll, we'll, we'll get the answers one day. But we also need to understand it's probably really important that I'm tuned into the Bible's questions. Not just that the Bible's tuned into my questions. So these are things we need to remember as we wrestle with the question today. Remember that Christians don't all agree on the length of creation in terms of 24-hour days or longer. They don't all agree, like my cousin and I, about what Genesis 1 through 11 is. Is is it a story of history? As I read it, that seems how it lays out to me. But I know there's other men and women of faith who, who take it a little different. And we understand that. As we wrestle with this and hold to our positions thoughtfully, but with humility. Here's one that's really important, though, to think about. You're having a conversation with somebody who would call themselves scientists, call themselves an evolutionist, and we need to really understand that there's a nuance that goes on here between what I'll call the science of evolution, the theory of evolution, and then what turns into a philosophy of evolution. And, and when you cross over, you, you've moved into an area that people like Steve, Stephen Jay Gould would say, you, you can't do that as, as, as a scientist. You, you can't talk about those things. You've gone from physical questions about this universe to the philosophical questions. You've moved from a scientist into a philosopher. And when you start talking to someone whose worldview doesn't have God in it, Now all of a sudden we realize we move from the science of evolution, the theory of evolution, now to the philosophy. So Mark Knoll says this. 
former professor of history at Wheaton College, now at Notre Dame. If evolution is taken to mean a grand philosophical explanation of everything based upon pure chance, then I don't believe in it at all. But as a scientific proposal for how species develop through natural selection, I say let the scientists who know what they are doing use their expertise and whatever theories help to find out as much as they can. On the Bible side, I do not think it's necessary to read everything in early Genesis as if it were written by a fact checker at New York Times. But it's persuasive basis for believing some cardinal things. One, that God made the original world, the stuff of this world. Two, that he providentially sustains all natural processes. And three, that he used a special act of creation to make humans in his own image. The Bible, he says, is not threatened by responsible scientific investigation. So these are really important things to remember as we're wrestling with the question. So let's end by looking into God's Word and seeing what God's Word says about these things. So grab a Bible and open up to Romans 1, 19-23, page 796. Now as you're turning there, this is the passage I wanted to get to two weeks ago because I know it was a question noodling in your mind. You're going, okay, we're talking about hell. And you were saying, but what about the person who's never heard about Jesus? How could God ever send them to hell? This text really wrestles with it along with Romans 2.15, this whole matter of conscious God's law being written on our hearts. So here's what Paul says. And the context here is people who have been suppressing the truth about God. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen. How so? Being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. God's not going to hold somebody accountable for what they don't know. Romans 1 is arguing God's going to hold them accountable for what they do know. And what he's arguing is, what you know by looking at creation is that there's a God. God's made it plain to them. It's evidently clear. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. He's saying what they did is, instead of worshiping God, the creator, they started worshiping idols, made in all the images of his creation. And so what Romans is telling us is, God's made it clear that when you're looking at God's world, as a scientist would, that it's evidently clear that there's a God who stands behind it and over it. And to not believe it would be like the craziness that we hear in our day where people, like the recent statement of the president of Iran, said, the Holocaust never happened. What? Yeah, there's people today that'll say that. Six million Jews were never exterminated. Never happened. Somebody made it up. I had a science teacher, get this, I had a science teacher in seventh grade who told me 
John F. Kennedy didn't die. He's orbiting the earth in a spaceship. I'm not kidding you. Guy got fired. It's a good thing. But he believed it. And, And Romans is saying it's clear. And if you don't see it clearly, Romans is arguing it's because you don't want to see it. You're suppressing the truth. Okay, so let me give you another illustration. You're driving through South Dakota. You say, hey, yeah, let's do Rushmore. Ever do Rushmore? It's a fun place, right? I got lost at Rushmore as a six-year-old. Pretty traumatic place. So you're driving by Rushmore, and you look up, and you see the four presidents, right? You got Washington, and, and you got Jefferson, and you got Roosevelt. Oh, my word. That, that's Nebel. How did Nebel get in this PowerPoint? It's supposed to be Lincoln, right? And so I, I've never been to the observation deck and heard people say, man, isn't it amazing? I mean, just think about how many millions of years that it took for, for, the, for the wind and the rain and the ice and the sleet and the snow to just kind of work its way over that rock so that it, man, it's just amazing how this all works. No. We look at it and we go, wow, who was the guy? Who was the guy? Well, it was John Gutson Borglum. That's who it was. We, we look at Rushmore and immediately we're thinking about a creator behind it. That, that's what Romans is saying. You look at God's creation. Unless you're suppressing the truth, it's God's fingerprints all over this world. I love this time of year. When the trees, when the trees don't have their leaves, you know what, what, what I always picture? Maybe you see it. I see the branches lifting up praise to God. Just lifting up, praise to God. It's all over. But here's the interesting thing. As much as it's plain for us to see a creator, God, Hebrews 11.1, the verse that Tom just read before in our song, lets us know, but it's going to be only by faith that we can believe that God created this world out of nothing. So here's what it says. By faith, not by an argument, not by that silver bullet that Rich was talking about last week. By faith, We understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So we got to take God at his word. And as we take God at his word, we understand it's not a blind leap in the dark, but we also understand when we take God at his word, it's two words. Hey, here's something that just, just hit me in a new way this week. God has authored two books that point to himself. The first is creation. And the second is the revelation of who he is, especially seen through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And, and so we want to understand that there's, there's these two works that God has used to point us to himself. And Psalm 19 brings these very two things together. Psalm 19, we read the Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. This is his first book of creation. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Wherever you go in this universe, you hear it. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course, his race. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from, his heat, from its heat. That's the book 
of creation. Singing. The psalmist, the poet says, singing songs in praise to its creator, God himself. And then right on the heels of that, verse 7 turns our attention to the second book. The Bible, called the law of the Lord, called the statutes, called the precepts, called the ordinances. These, these things that revive the soul, that make, the, make wise the simple that give joy to our heart, that, that brings radiance and life to our eyes. And it ends with this very interesting phrase in verse 14. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my creator. Is that what it says? My redeemer. You see, one of the things we need to recognize is though looking at creation leaves us without an excuse to know that there's a God and if he's our creator, that has an impact on my life and how I live my life. But there's a limitation. I can learn that he's my creator in creation. I can't learn he's my redeemer. I needed God's special revelation for that. And so we have the limits of science that are even here in this song, in this beautiful psalm. Without the Bible, I wouldn't know that my creator is also my redeemer. Science can tell us things about this physical world that we live in, but it can't tell us about some of these other things. It can't tell us about our relationship with this one who's created it all and holds it all into existence today, this very moment, every molecule of your body and mine. So does science disprove the Bible? I don't believe it does. And we didn't even have a chance to get into the historicity of it. If you were here week two, is the Bible reliable? Can I trust it? We talked about the historicity of this word of God. We didn't even talk about historicity and history. That's a science. We, we didn't talk about archaeology. Archaeology hasn't unraveled the Bible to say, oh, no, wait a minute. We found some stuff that's dug deep and we you know, uncovered it and the whole thing's a ruse. It doesn't work. No, actually, time and time again, archaeological discovery after one, after the other, keeps verifying these things to be true. These things to be true. So uh, where do we go? Well, I, I'm not even dreaming that I've convinced you if you're a person who's really wondering how these two things work together at this point. So I, I'm not thinking that that's happened in this short time. But, but I hope you're open to some things. I hope you're thinking about the history of science, the men of science. I, I hope you're thinking about credible scientists today like Francis Collins who hold to these things that you think you can't hold to as a credible scientist. And I hope as you're, as you're wrestling through these things that, that you take advantage of some of the resources that we have here. And I'll just point one of them out. Case for creation. The whole book is devoted to these very questions. It's very accessible. And I hope you come back tomorrow night. Bring your questions. Bring your friends. And let's keep the conversation going. Now I want to talk to the students. And I'm thinking, a lot of you are walking into these classes and you're going, oh man, I don't want them to know what I believe. And I, I, I don't know enough about even what I believe. And you're intimidated. And there's some heated rhetoric. Like the Dawkins rhetoric. Or you, you know, you're stupid. 
You're ignorant if you believe these things. I, I just want you to be bolstered to know there are credible scientists in this church family and across this country and the world who are doing great science as women and men of faith. And I don't want you to be intimidated. And then for some of us who, quite frankly, let's just face it, we don't like to get in these conversations. We just like, to, yeah, I don't want to talk about that. Can't hear you, can't hear you. Or, you know, when it gets heated, you just talk louder. You're not saying anything new. You're not having a conversation. You're just getting loud. And, yeah, let, come on. There, there are people that we know and live with, and these are real questions. And we can't pretend that they're not. And you know what? We, we, we don't have to feel like we've got all the answers. But let's, let's us grow. And let's enter into these things that for, for our passage has been uncomfortable. I didn't go there. I don't go there. I don't go to politics. I don't go to creation evolution. I, you know, there's certain things I just don't go there. Because it always ends up bad. Well, let, let's, let's grow in this. As we seek to be people that God would use to change lives people and the devoted followers of Christ who join us in changing the world with his love. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, your character, your power, your, your majesty in all of this earth that we live in. You've ordained praise, not only from the lips of children and infants, but from us. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see you as we live in this world and see the beauty and the intricacy of this world. I pray that you'd open hearts that are hardened to the fact that maybe these things could come together. I pray, Father, that you'd grant faith to believe that you made this world out of nothing. And then I pray, Father, that you would embolden those who are intimidated and move some of us off the edges of our comfort zone to engage in humble conversations that would point people to you, our creator and our great redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.